understanding of who he was from his word. Megan was just reciting some incredible things about the Bible. I've been having this read to me or read it, studied it, learned it my whole life. As long as I can remember, this Bible has been the source of truth for me. And I've tested it. I went to a big state university. I didn't have one Christian professor at my state university. And I didn't have one theist professor. In other words, I didn't have one professor I can remember who was willing to say he or she believed in God. And so every day I would go to school classes and I would have to defend my faith and really test and see if this Bible was true or not. And I must tell you, every time I did that, it proved itself to be true. I have never read anything. I've never studied anything that explains reality better than this book. I've never read anything that explains what a human being is and what the purpose of our lives is and what the human condition is. I've never read anything that explains why this world has so much beauty and goodness and order and design and at the same time, badness and darkness and twistedness and chaos. The Bible explains life and reality unlike anything I've ever heard. You may have heard people say the Bible's a blueprint for life or a map of how to get somewhere, and there's some truth to those things, but it's way more like a love letter from our Creator written to those He loves, His creation, so that we can know Him as He is and have lives as He intended, abundant and eternal. After college, I... Uh, had a couple tryouts with a couple of NFL teams, got quick, cut really quickly, and then I got picked up by a team in Europe to play in the league over there that was going on at that time in the late 80s. And so I signed a contract, and not long after that, I had a few months off, and during those few months, I decided to hitchhike around the country. And I did, that's not, I'm not advising you to do that. If you do that and something happens to you, your parents cannot blame me. I'm not advising you do that, but I did it. I did it for a few months. I hitchhiked around the country, and I grew up a tough guy. You know, I played, like I said, I played hockey and football. I grew up near New York, and so I always had this real independence. Didn't feel like I needed anybody, and I had been dating Donna, as I told you, that I met when I was 16, for now six years We've been dating a long time. We met when we were kids, and I never felt the need to get married. And I was hitchhiking around the country, and I got to the Badlands in South Dakota, which are a desolate place, beautiful place, but a desolate place. And I was there by myself, and I was looking at the Badlands, and I had this thought. I thought, man, I wish Donna was here. I felt like I couldn't quite enjoy this beautiful place without her presence with me. And I had never felt anything like that before. I always felt pretty just fine by myself and didn't feel like anything was minimized if someone wasn't there with me in particular. But this time I felt like, man, I just can't seem to enjoy this the way I want to because Donna's not here. And it really made me think, maybe I should ask her to marry me. Maybe, because I never wanted to get married. What I came to realize, though, is I wanted to marry Donna. And so that's what I did. I went home and I asked her to marry me. And then three weeks after we got engaged, I got on a plane and I flew to Europe to play football for six months. And so we didn't see each other for six months. And I must tell you, for the first time in my life, I was in love. And 
there was one phone in the place I was living. You, it's hard for you to even imagine that. But there was one phone. It, it was a landline, and it was in this lobby area of this sort of hotel where I was living. And, and if I wanted to call Donna, I had a caller on this phone in the middle of this lobby. And it was really expensive. And, and it was, there was no privacy. And so for the first time in my life, I started to write letters. And she wrote letters to me much more regularly than I wrote to her. And I must tell you, I will never forget how precious those letters were to me when they would come in the mail. And, and I would read them, and I left, I left them on the nightstand next to my bed, and I'd read them before I went to bed. I'd read them when I woke up in the morning. She would just tell me about her day and about herself and about what she imagined our married life was going to be. It was just amazing to get these letters. They were precious to me. They communicated so much of who she is and who she was and, and what her fears and concerns in life were. And I was getting to know her better through these carefully written letters. And, and she was getting a few from me as well. They were amazingly important to me. You see, when you love someone, you want to know them, right? Those two things just go hand in hand, don't they? And the more you know someone, the greater your capacity to love them. Knowing someone doesn't necessarily mean you're going to love them, but it certainly helps and is actually essential to love someone. And the more you love someone, the more a student of the beloved you become. And the more you know about the one you love, the more you're capable of loving them well. And so I want you to understand the vital, necessary, absolute connection between love and knowledge. We sort of have this idea that love is this oozy thing that bubbles up from inside and just happens like it does in romantic comedies, not in the midst of real life working hard to get to know somebody. Now, if that's true of a human being, how much more true is it of God? That if you want to love God, which is what you're created for more than anything else, what does Jesus say when he's asked? How do you summarize the commandments? He says this. What does he say? Anybody know? What is it? Tell me your name. Bennett. That's beautiful, Bennett. Nice job, Bennett. Yes. Bennett knows. Yes. Bennett knows the great commandment the great commandment love the lord your god with your heart soul mind and strength all of you and your neighbor is yourself translate that vertical love into horizontal love bennett's on his way to doing that he can't do that if he doesn't know that right and if you know that you know the heart of the god you were created to love with your heart soul mind and strength right so jesus says what if you love me what will you do what will you do? I heard it. Whoa. Who said that? Who said obey my commandments? Tell me your name. Mark, obey my commandments. Jesus says, if you love me. Yes, if, yes Mark. Yeah, it's you. Yeah. <laughs> right. right. If you love me, you'll do what I say. Now I must ask you, if you love God, if you love Jesus and then that's shown, he says, in a fundamental way in obeying what he says. Can you love him if you don't know what he says? 
No, you certainly can't obey what he says if you don't know what he says. So the point here is there's this fundamental connection between love and knowledge. I said last night when people don't believe in truth, they don't care about learning. But the only way to get to knowledge is to devote yourself to learning. If you're a Christian, I want to challenge you to be deep, to be thoughtful. You know, I have a friend, he's an amazing evangelist. And he got on a plane one time, and he sat down, and he, he, I think, is wisely someone who gets right at it. He sat down, and he had a couple minutes of small talk with this guy, and he said, hey, tell what do you believe about God? And the guy went off for 15 minutes. Oh, I believe God is a rhythm to the universe and, and, and energy, and when you pray, it releases energy into the universe, and, and there's this, this uh, yin and yang woven through everything, and he's just going on and on and on. And Eddie said to me, he said, you know, I've never done this before, and I don't advise you do it. But I listened to this guy, and I, I could pick up that he didn't really know what he was talking about. He was just parroting things he had heard or read somewhere. And so the guy's done, and Eddie says to him, come on. You know that's all a load of crap, huh? And the guy goes, yeah, I guess so. Unbelievable. He just calls him on it, and he says, yeah, I guess. And, and he was. He was just saying stuff he had heard, and he couldn't define one of those big, fancy-sounding sentences he said. He couldn't even come up with a coherent explanation. So, so we've got to be deep people who think well and realize the connection between love and knowledge and belief and, and behavior, too. You know, you'll always end up You'll always end up ultimately living out what you believe. That's what you'll always, you can fake it for a while, but when pressure comes, when suffering comes, when challenge comes, you'll end up living out what you actually believe deep down, in spite of what you may say. So there's a fundamental connection between love and knowledge and belief and behavior. And I want to remind you what we're doing here this week. Here's our goal. Our mission this week is belief. Because we believe belief, according to the scriptures, is fundamental to fulfilling what you're created to be. Without belief, you can't know and love God. Without belief, you can't be and live out who God created you to be. And I love what we were just singing, just, just as was highlighted, right? I am who you say I am. Not just good things I've heard from other people or wanting to impress other people, but, but maybe you lived your whole life thinking you're someone other than who God thinks you are. You know, I sat down, my wife and I sat down with Megan when we adopted our girls. They were, they were young. They were eight and seven when we adopted them. And, and, and I felt over my head. I had never been a dad before. And so we sat down with Megan who spent her whole adult life working with adolescent girls. And here we have these girls. So we sat down and we said, the woman who was reading the spoken word, right? She, and we said, Meg, what do we need to know about raising girls? I'll never forget what she said. She said, every girl I've ever met early on in her life, and this is true of boys too. Every girl I've ever met, she said, early on in her life, learned to define herself by a word or two. And she said, and it doesn't even matter, and, and that's really bad. And it doesn't even matter if it's a good word or a bad word. It's just bad. Whether the word is stupid or smart, 
or whether the word is beautiful or ugly, it's always tragic to define yourself by a word that people perceive of you. And it gets fed. I even hear parents do it. Oh, this is our Johnny. He's our athlete. Right? This is Rachel. She's our studious one. Right? And that's not a helpful way to think about ourselves. Because then you think you've got to keep that going. Because that's who everybody expects you to be. Or you define yourself by this really negative thing, and it's a cloud over you. And God comes in, and he speaks a word about who we are and who he is, and it changes everything. And we are who he says we are. And here's, here's the message this morning. God has spoken. God has spoken about who he is. God has spoken about who you are. God has spoken about what the meaning of life is and how you get to that meaning of life. God has spoken of how you can get to life rather than death, to light rather than darkness. God has spoken. We have his word. And you may not have ever read it, and I'm glad you're here. You may not be convinced it's God's word like I am. Like Megan was saying in that, we, I was just in Germany with my wife leading a tour, and we went to the place where Martin Luther was hiding because people wanted to kill him because he was translating the Bible from Latin into German so people could read it, so farmers could read their Bibles. And people have opposed that kind of thing because they know that in the word of God is power and freedom and life. And sometimes people want the control and the power over people and they don't want them to have it for themselves. That's why slave masters during slavery would do anything to keep the slaves from even learning to read because they knew that in knowledge is power. And so we've got to realize this is the word of God if we're going to get to anything of lasting value. We continue to think about what this is all about. Remember we said last night, just by review really quickly, what aligns with God's character and ways is what truth is. You know, we think because we live in a democracy, truth is determined by popular vote. It's not. Sometimes the majority is terribly wrong. Terribly wrong. And we've seen that tragically played out in human history. Sometimes it's the minority who are getting it right. And so we don't go to what's cool or trendy or statistically popular or what wins the popular vote. We go to God. The Bible says, let God be true and every man a liar. In other words, if all of humanity took a vote and 100% of humanity voted one way and God voted the other way, God's right. I heard an old black preacher say one time, God's like mama. His way is the way. I love it. He's even more than like mama. He, mama's only right when she aligns with God, right? Let God be true and every man a liar. Human beings get it wrong a lot. We don't know the truth so often. And so we've got to go to God for this. It's the, the, the way things really are. And so wisdom then, life lived the way it's intended, depends on knowing God's word and conforming our lives to it, not expecting him to conform everything to us. And just real quickly, remember, autonomy is self-determination. Ontology is how things really are. And even if it feels natural and comes naturally to you, if it's not according to God's definition of nature, it's not natural. And so we've got to realize, as we said last night, what's this phrase? What is it? Ontology always trumps autonomy, right? God's way is the way. And so... We are, again, affirming and establishing that God is the perfect, holy, truthful, faithful, knowing, wise, unchanging God, which means the word he's given us 
is actually reflective of that character. That's who he is, and so his word given to us is reflective of his perfect, holy, truthful, faithful, all-knowing, wise, unchanging character. That's all stuff we can say about the word of God as well. It reflects the character of the one who wrote it. And so we're going to go to John 1 again and look at a passage, and we'll see how important the Bible is to Jesus, to the people asking Jesus questions and trying to figure out who he is, And John the Baptist, his cousin, this crazy dude who's out in the wilderness eating uh, locusts and wild honey and and just dressing crazy and living wild on the land out there. He's not cool in society. But listen what happens. John 1, 19. Listen. Help us, Lord, please. Amen. John 1, 19. And this is the testimony of John. This is John the Baptist, Jesus' cousin. Not, not John the Apostle who's writing this epistle. This is John the Baptist, son of Elizabeth, Jesus' aunt, Mary's sister. And this is the testimony of John. When the Jews sent priests and Levites from Jerusalem to ask him, who are you? So my man John the Baptist is out in the wilderness and he is preaching a hard message, calling out religious leaders and calling people to repentance to prepare for the saving mercy of the Messiah who's coming after him. They say, who are you? And their intentions, I'm just going to tell you, are not innocent. They're not honest. They've got an agenda. They don't like the power shift that's going on as the people are following the one preparing the way for the Messiah. Who are you? He confessed. And did not deny, but confessed, I'm not the Christ. Now, we've got to understand that word Christ. I don't know, in my life growing up, I I heard it mostly as a swear word, combined with other words. But you need to understand this word. It's a hugely important word. It's an English translation of the Greek word Christos, which is a, a... a synonymous term, same, same idea as the Hebrew word Mashiach, which we get Messiah. Christ is just the, the Greek version of the Hebrew version Messiah. Same word. Mashiach, Christos, Messiah, Christ means literally. Anybody know what it means literally? He saves, but literally first and foremost, how, how and why does he save? There you go. Who's that? My man, what's your name? Jake. It means the anointed one. Now, if you think of prophets, priests, and and kings in the Old Testament, they were installed in an inaugural ceremony, and the key part of that inaugural ceremony, anybody know what it was? It was anointing with oil. Right? You even get these pictures in the Psalms of the Messiah, and it says, it says, he has oil dripping off his beard. And you read that and you say, is that a good thing? Doesn't sound good to me. Sounds like I need a shower, right? No, oil is a symbol of the spirit, right? For a prophet, priest, and king to fulfill his prophetic, priestly, and kingly ministry, the spirit of God had to come upon him to enable him to do that. That's why David, when he sins terribly, what does he say to God? Take, don't take your Holy Spirit from me. That's not in a basic way. That's in a kingly anointing way to enable him to do that. So here comes the anointed one. The Christ. Remember, if you've read Jesus' baptism, 
What happens at his baptism when he begins his public ministry? Remember, he, he's a baptized, and then the Spirit descends as a dove, anointing him for ministry, and the Father says, this is my beloved Son, in whom I'm well pleased. Father, Son, and Spirit working beautifully to bring redemption to us. And so the Spirit comes, and Jesus is the anointed one. He's the Messiah we've been waiting for. This Messiah, they're longing for him. They're under Roman oppression. They can't live the way they want. They're in their own promised land, and the Romans are controlling it. And so they're saying, Messiah, come. Come and liberate us and free us. But Jesus does come, but he's got a different agenda than the one they want, like we'll see tonight. But he's the anointed one. He's the Christ. And so these leaders come and say, are you the one we've been waiting for? For millennia? For thousands of years to free us? Well, it used to be the Babylonians. It used to be the Egyptians. Now it's the Romans. We've been under oppression as long as we can remember. Are you finally going to free us? Are you the one, John? And John says, no. Really clear about it. He says, I'm just preparing you for the one who is the Christ. The one who's coming. He's the Christ. And, they, and he, they asked him, what then? Are you Elijah? Lots of people had lots of ideas of who the Messiah is going to be, who the Christ is going to be. He said, I'm not. Are you the prophet? This prophet we've been waiting for? Now, what's going on here? What, what, why would they say the prophet? Look at this. Deuteronomy 18. Moses, who's more of a representative of God than Moses? 40 days on Mount Sinai, told no one had ever met with God like Moses did as face to face. He comes off the mountain glowing with the tablets and the covenant, how to relate to God. No one could be considered speaking on behalf of God more than Moses. But look what Moses says. The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among you, from your brothers. It's to him you shall listen. I will raise up for them a prophet like you from among their brothers, and I will put my words in his mouth, and he shall speak to them all that I command. That's why the apostle Peter, when he starts preaching the gospel of Jesus Christ, says this. Look what he says. Peter says, Moses said, quoting Deuteronomy 18, the Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from your brothers. You shall listen to him and whatever he tells you. So John the Baptist, Peter saying, no, 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 we're not the ones you look to. They point away from themselves and they say, look to Jesus. Look to him. He's the Christ. He's the Messiah. He's the one you need. He's the one you need to know and love and obey and follow. And you will find life and freedom that you desperately need. And so he's saying, no, it's not me. It's the one that they said would come. And look what happens now. No, I'm not. 22. So they said to him, who are you? We needed to give an answer to those who sent us. What do you say about yourself? He said, I'm the one who's the voice crying in the wilderness. Make straight the way of the Lord, as the prophet Isaiah said. I'm the one preparing the way. And I want you to notice something here. The one telling the truth is a social outcast. The one telling the truth is not popular. He's actually hated. He's going to have his head cut off for what he's doing right now. He's going to be beheaded. Because Herod hates him, because he, he's, he's drawing the people away from the power structure of the time. And so, so he calls them out. And he's not cool, he's not popular. He said, I'm this lone voice. Look, to stand for truth often will mean standing alone. Now, you're never ultimately alone because God's always got a faithful remnant. You've always got company. It's like Elijah who said, I alone have been jealous for your honor. And God says, no, Elijah. 
No, I've preserved 7,000 in Jerusalem who haven't kissed the mouth of Baal. You're not alone. You're never ultimately alone, but in some social situations, in some family situations, in some relationships, you might feel very alone. And you need to have the courage to be men and women of truth who stand with conviction and boldness for truth no matter what. We'll talk about that on Friday. 24. Now, they had been sent from the Pharisees, this group that hated Jesus. They asked him, then why are you baptizing? If you're neither the Christ nor Elijah nor the prophet, John answered them, I baptize with water, but among you stands one you do not know, even he who comes after me. Listen to this. The strap of whose sandal I'm not worthy to untie. These things took place in Bethany across from the Jordan where John was baptizing. John says, no, it's not about me. It's about this one who's coming. He, he says in another gospel, I, I just baptize with water. He's coming to baptize with fire, ju judgment. And he says, I'm unworthy to untie his sandal. Do you know, the, the most lowly task you could have as a servant is when the master came home, you untie his sandal, take off his shoes and wash his feet. And, and John says, I'm not even worthy of that. Somebody's been walking in these open sewers in the first century, and, and he says, I'm not worthy to take off his filthy sandals off his filthy feet. That's how he puts things in perspective. Now, I want you to notice what's going on here. Their seeking of truth is all about getting the word of God right. Their, their quest to know whether John is the one, who is the one, it's all referring to the Bible, the Old Testament. The old covenant teachings that promise the Messiah's coming. That's the one they look to. And so the word of God is the framework of their lives. It's how they def define truth, decide truth, determine truth, discern truth. It's the word of God. And I, I want us to realize our methodology this week, every time I preach, I want to be teaching a methodology of getting to truth, not just truth. And I hope you realize how important the scriptures are. It's not my opinion. It's not what I think. Yes, all scripture has to be interpreted and explained and brought to light. That's what I'm working to do. But I hope it's really clear to you all week that where I'm going and where we care to go is to the word of God. I don't care what you think about my opinions. But when we preach from the word, it's not just opinions. It's truth from God which has authority in your life. He's the boss of you, but he's the best boss you could ever have. He's the boss who's always for you and always helping you live for what he made you for. And he knows best because he's the one who made you. And so we've got to realize that Jesus is the Christ and the scriptures were the basis for his entire life. Um, and so I just, I just want to quickly, I just want to throw this at you. Don't, don't like get out of, I'm, this is going to be in an exam mode. I just want a bit to overwhelm you with the characteristics of scripture. Don't, don't feel like you have to get all this down or anything like that, but, but just look. So we believe scripture is inspired by God, that the Bible is actually God's word inspiring human authors who maintain their personal characteristics and concerns, speaking to the audience they're speaking to, but with God getting exactly what he wants from that. And, and there's even difference in grammar and different letters written in the New Testament based on who somebody was. And so there's a human divine aspect to the Bible, but we believe it's inspired by God. It comes to us from God. 
through inspired human authors. And it reflects his character. Paul says to the Thessalonians, it's not as the words of men, but it actually is the word of God, which is at work in you who believe. You may not believe it's the word of God, but can I at least ask you, wouldn't it be awesome if our creator actually spoke to us? You know, that's usually how I begin conversations with people. Do you believe in God? And then there's yes or no, and we go in different directions. If it's yes, I say, do you think he's spoken to us? Do you think he's given us a word? And maybe they'll say yes, and I'll say, well, do you think he'd ever contradict himself? Do you think he'd mess with us? What kind of God do you think would give us his word? And why would he give us his word? And if he has, we need to know he gives it to us for life so that we have everything he calls us to be. And if it's his word that's inspired, it has authority. He really is giving us word that we submit to. I know we hate words like submit, but it's glorious to submit to an all-loving, all-good God who's always the wise one. The Bible is our supreme authority in everything. I love Isaiah 48. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. So it has authority in our lives. It's inerrant. It doesn't have errors in it. The Bible's without error in everything it teaches. It's trustworthy and reliable. Listen to Proverbs 30. Every word of God is flawless. He's a shield to those who take refuge in him. And you know what else is important? It's clear. It's basically clear. It's by, written mostly by average people for average people so they could understand it. That's why, you know, Martin Luther, when he translated his, his German Bible, he, he was a very highly educated man. So you know what he did? He went down to the marketplace and he listened to the poor people talk. He listened to the, just the average people in the marketplace, the, the, the blue-collar workers. He listened to them talk because he wanted to write a Bible they could understand. And that's how the original manuscripts were written, for, for people to understand. It's clear. They're able to be understood. A five-year-old, like I was, can hear the Bible and come to saving faith in Jesus. Now, there are some very hard things to understand in the Bible, but it's mostly very clear, and I think there's a good reason for the hard things I can explain later. Well, by the way, I'm going to have a, just a question and answer time Thursday, 1.30. For any questions you have, keep them going. I'd love to sit down with a group and answer any questions you may have to the best of my ability, and we'll get to truth together. The clarity of Scripture. The Bible's able to be understood by all who read it, seeking God's help, and being willing to follow it. Psalm 19.7, the statutes of the Lord are trustworthy, making wise the simple, bringing to understanding those who don't have understanding. It, it's clear. And it's sufficient gloriously. It tells us everything we need for life and godliness. It's God-breathed. It teaches us, rebukes us, corrects us, trains us in righteousness, and equips us for every good work. And it's delightful. I don't want you to miss this. Listen to how the psalmist talks about the word of God. It's perfect, trustworthy, right, radiant, sure, altogether righteous, more precious than gold, sweeter than honey. By them your servant is warned, and keeping them there is great reward. I would love for you to get to the point where you love the Bible. You don't just believe it, you love it. Because it's become like food to a hungry man to you. Or, or water to a thirsty woman to you, that you see the Bible as God's incredible gift to you that he's provided for our good. That's, that's what he's made us for, for himself, for everything he's wanting us to understand. Um, but we live in an interesting time, don't we? Listen to William Borden. He was a student at Yale and Princeton. I highly recommend his biography, Borden of Yale. He died at 27 as a missionary in China. 
There were seven memorial services for him around the world. He gave his fortune away that he had and became a missionary and died on the mission field at 27. He was an incredible man, born in Yale, his biography. But look what he says as a student in 1910. It is even, uh, sorry, much more serious, his environment in, in college, is the general agnostic atmosphere pervading everything. That means we don't have answers. We don't know. Agnostics means no, no answers, no knowledge. Uh, much more serious is the general agnostic atmosphere pervading everything and deadening all convictions, those as to sin and truth included. In line with this, a broad spirit of tolerance is insisted upon, especially in matters of religion. And any and all are branded as narrow who dare think otherwise. That word narrow is one of Satan's deadliest weapons, it seems to me, for most people would apparently rather be shot than called narrow. Thus, it is even as Christ predicted, the broad way to destruction is thronged, but few are climbing the narrow way that leads to life. When we come to distinctively Christian and religious matters, the situation's even worse. 1910, he wrote that. 1910, imagine what he'd think now. Where, Elijah, where are you? I talked to you this morning. Where's Elijah? Is he here? Where are you? Elijah's in the back. Look at that good-looking man back there. Uh, I met him this morning. First thing he said to me is, this is Filipino. <laughs> I love it. He is beautifully Filipino. You know, I talked about the guy last night who, who decided he's Filipino even though he's not. You know, talk to a Filipino guy about what that sounds like. You ain't Filipino, man. But we live in an age where people are like, good for you, I'm happy for you. You're Filipino even though you're not. And, and we need to say, Wait. Something wrong with it. Wait, wait, wait. Look, I, I want to love this guy, right? I, I want to be kind to him. I want to realize, well, maybe he's got some, some issues of some kind. But I'm not going to go along with this false reality because that'd be dishonoring to Elijah and to Amy. I want you to get this because we live in an age where somebody can say something completely nonsensical, incoherent, completely conflicting with reality itself, and we just give it a like. Give it a heart. Happy for you. You know, people come to me and say, you know, I don't believe any of that stuff you believe as a Christian, but you know what? Good for you. I'm happy for you. I'm glad you found something that works. You know what I say? That's ridiculous. Don't be happy for me if I'm believing things that aren't true. Please don't be happy for me if I'm believing lies because I'm betting the ranch on Jesus. I am betting my whole life on him. I am doing everything for him, everything. So please stop with this happy for me. If you believe differently, try to convince me otherwise. And you know, it's really ethnocentric to think that way because in most parts of the world, you can't even buy spices in the marketplace if you can't argue well. And we live in a culture where we think arguing's mean or contradicting someone's beliefs is wrong or we shouldn't do it or we shouldn't question it. If we really love people, we're going to call them to follow the truth that alone will give life. And if you don't do that, you're not a loving person. You're actually cruel. If somebody thinks that, that crack is going to help them in life be better people, are you going to say, well, good for you. I'm happy for you. No, you're going to say no and do everything you can to help them see the emptiness of a crack-ridden, tragic life, right? 
Don't tell me you're loving if you affirm someone's beliefs in lies. And I want you to hear me speak hard truth this week, but from a loving father. I can't tell you how much fatherly affection and love and concern flows from my heart for you. Just as I walk around and look at you, you're a beautiful bundle of incredible, awesome giftedness and insecurity and all this stuff. I just love you. Look at you. But I'm, I'm speaking to you as a father. And when one of my kids comes to me, Believing a lie, I don't say, well, I can see why you think that. Like, if my daughter comes and says, Daddy, I'm worthless, am I going to say, well, I'm happy for you? You know what I'm going to say? I'm going to say, honey, I I want you to know that that couldn't be less true. That that's actually a lie. And do you know where the source of lies comes from? Jesus said, Satan's the father of lies. So that lie that you're worthless is coming straight from hell. So let's send it back where it came from. Can we do that? And, and, and so I am not going to water things down so, so you don't feel like I'm coming on too strong. Because I hate lies. Do you? Yeah. And I love truth. Do you? Because truth leads you to life. Truth leads you to lives that really matter and have meaning. And lies lead you to the grave. And I want you to have life. That's what the whole Gospel of John is written for, that you will believe that Jesus is the Christ and have life in his name, which means according to who he is. So that's what we're after this week, believing in Jesus and having life in his name and saying goodbye to any lie that contradicts anything from God's word. Let me pray. Lord, help us to trust in you. Help us to love you. Help us to love your word and trust your word because we know it is a loving letter written to your creatures so that we can know you and love you and have life as you intended. Lord, I thank you for each young man and woman here. And I pray your blessing on them. I pray you'd be working in their hearts, even if they came here and are even here this morning with hard hearts, folded arms, angry temperaments, whatever it is. They hate my guts. Whatever it is, Lord, I pray that you'd be working in a way that draws them to yourself and gives them lives that you created them to have, which alone will satisfy, which alone will lead to everything our deepest heart's desire wants. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.